Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights Church. This week, we're continuing a six-week sermon series that we've entitled Christ of the Covenants. Um, Throughout the Bible, God graciously binds himself to his people with what's called a covenant. And he does this simply because he chooses to, simply because he wants us to know him within the context of a covenant relationship. And so covenant theology traces the successive waves of God's grace, which are moving, have moved, will move history from the failure of Adam to the victory of Jesus. And so basically, we're, we're, taking our way, we're making our way through the Bible chronologically, covenant by covenant, exploring the manner in which God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And last week, Brandon covered God's covenant with Abraham. That was a covenant of promise. And this week, we'll discuss God's covenant with Moses. It's a covenant of law. Before we get into the passage, though, I want to give us some context. Where are we within the story at this point? In the beginning, God created everything good, and he appointed Adam as covenant head over all creation. That should be familiar to us now in week four of this series. But Adam rebelled against God's authority. He broke God's covenant. And nevertheless, in the midst of that brokenness, God God draws near and he initiates a covenant of grace. He promises to defeat sin and death and suffering to accomplish redemption for his people. But the world was broken on account of this sin, on account of man's rebellion. Everything was degenerating. It was coming apart at the seams. And so God decreates and recreates Noah, as a new Adam, is given a fresh start. But Noah failed too. And so God promised to preserve the earth until his redemption could be accomplished. And then, as we saw last week, God called Abraham and established a family, promising to grow and prosper that family so that it could be a blessing to the entire world. God's promise to Abraham was that his family would be a blessing to the nations. And today, we're going to see how God grows Abraham's family into a nation. God is going to tell the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, how to be a blessing to the nations. And he's going to do this through a man named Moses. The book of Exodus tells us the story of Moses' birth. He was born to parents in slavery. And the Pharaoh of Egypt had commanded that all male slave children should be killed. And so Moses' mother, in order to preserve his life, placed Moses in a basket in the river. Now, the Hebrew word for basket here is, it's only used one other time in all of Scripture. Can you guess where? With Noah. This is also the Hebrew word for ark. So, like Noah, Moses was brought safely through water by ark to serve as a covenant head for God's people, to to further God's redemptive purposes. So, this little textual clue invites us to see all of these covenants as connected, and it's one of many, okay? So, God is going to tell the nation of Israel how to be a blessing to the nations. And I want us to pay very close attention this morning because... 
God's covenant with Moses brings to the surface some of the most significant theological disputes in the church today. And these aren't, these aren't just disputes for seminary professors to debate. These are disputes that have real implications for our everyday lives. In essence, we're going to be asking the question, what is the proper relation of law and gospel? How do the law and the gospel relate to one another? If you've been around Christians for a while, you may have heard someone say something like this. You know, it's not, it's not that you have to obey God. It's that because of Jesus, you should want to obey God. And ultimately, we say this because it's, it's really difficult to understand the proper relation of law and gospel. We tend to view God's law as clunky and outdated, sometimes even embarrassing. We don't know what to do with it, and so we attempt to rid ourselves of its demands. But today it's my prayer, it's, it's my prayer that growing in our understanding of God's covenant with Moses will, will offer a slight correction to our understanding of the necessity of obedience. Let me first put it this way. I have a two-year-old daughter. Um, she is remarkably strong-willed at home, um, and really she... She's made an art out of ignoring us when we ask her to do something that she would rather not do. Um, now, I wouldn't want someone coming into my home and saying, you know, Adeline, it's not that you have to obey your dad. It's that because of Jesus, you should want to obey your dad. No. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a power trip kind of father. But obedience is not an option for my daughter. And that's not so that she will become my child. That's because she is my child. Of course, I, I would love it if she wanted to obey me. If that was like the desire of her heart. But that's irrelevant when she's running into the street, right? Adeline, stop your feet. I love her which is why I insist that she obey me. And as she gets older, I hope obedience gets easier as she understands more and more my love for her. And today I hope we'll see a similar relationship between God and his people. And I hope that reorients our understanding of his rules. Okay, let's take a look at Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So the nation of Israel descended from Abraham is in captivity. They are enslaved to the Egyptians, and they're groaning and crying out to God for rescue. And God has compassion on them. The suffering of God's people does not go unnoticed, ever. God remembers his covenant with Abraham. He remembers his promise to bless the nations through this people. And God uses Moses to lead Abraham's family out of captivity. Exodus chapter 4 describes 
the nation of Israel as God's firstborn son, the entire nation as God's firstborn son. And again, this is meant to point us back both to Adam and to Noah. And as we'll see, forward to Christ. Adam was God's firstborn son, created by God and called to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion on the earth. Noah was a new Adam, saved through the waters of judgment, called to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion on the earth. Now Israel was created by God, established by God, saved through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea, called to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion on the earth. Israel is God's new Adam, God's new humanity. And this notion is supported even further as the story continues to unfold. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam is expelled from the Garden of Eden to the east, and the way back to the garden is guarded by a sword. Hundreds of years later, as the people of Israel are entering the Promised Land, entering the new Eden, their leader Joshua passes by a man wielding a sword. And so the imagery is inviting us to see that God's people, God's new humanity, is re-entering his new Eden. Together, as a nation, they were called to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion on the earth. So the scriptures invite us to see Israel as God's firstborn, a new Adam, a new Noah, a new humanity. Let's jump back to the verses we just read. We're told that God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And so there's a, there's a big implication here that we cannot afford to miss. God's covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel falls squarely within the stream of God's gracious action throughout history. It wasn't faith under Abraham and law under Moses. It was all grace. It was always grace. Even the giving of the law was an act of grace on God's part. The giving of the law was a necessary step as God began to make good on his promises to Abraham. In other words, it's not as though the Abraham thing failed, the Abraham experiment, and his descendants are now enslaved. So God's going to try this new Moses thing. These two covenants are both part of the same grand arc of redemption, moving history from Adam to Jesus. And even so, this can get confusing. It's admittedly confusing, especially when we get to the New Testament, the the portion of the Bible written after Jesus. What is the proper relation of law and gospel? That's our big question today, and it's a big question in the New Testament. And it's confusing, and here's why. This is admittedly simplistic, but it's my best attempt at why this gets so confusing. When the New Testament writers want to emphasize continuity across the covenants, they talk about Abraham. And when the New Testament writers want to emphasize discontinuity across the covenants, they talk about Moses. And that is confusing. But again, that's not to say that the covenant with Abraham was good and the covenant with Moses was bad. The writers of the New Testament had no problem with God's covenant with Moses. They had a problem with how 
First century Jews were interpreting God's law. So how can we, as, as the church today, avoid misinterpreting God's law? You may have heard the expression, don't miss the forest for the trees. We have to be careful not to miss the big picture because we're so focused on the details. And in this case, we must not miss the grace forest for the law trees. Okay? Grace is the big picture here with Moses. But we're tempted to view the law apart from its loving covenantal context. It's only ever within the context of a loving relationship that God gives us rules to follow. He is a loving father helping his children learn to obey, learn to be like him. And so the concept of law must always be considered within the context of grace and covenant and loving fatherly relationship. Now, if, if we're attempting to earn God's favor, by obeying the law. We've misunderstood the nature of a covenant. If we're attempting to earn God's favor by obeying the law, we've misunderstood the nature of a covenant. This is what we call legalism. And when we misunderstand the nature of a covenant, we can only avoid this legalism by ridding ourselves of the law completely. That's when we start saying things like, it's not that you have to obey God. It's that because of Jesus, you should want to obey God. When we say things like this, we're trying to rid ourselves of the law because we cannot fit the law within our current gospel framework. But here's a quote directly from Jesus. We don't like it, but he said it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Each of the six covenants in this sermon series have obligations. God commands obedience from us from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. The law of Moses simply expanded upon those obligations. But that expansion must still be understood within the context of a pre-existing, loving, covenantal relationship with God our Father. And this is more or less what God says when he first delivers the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So in essence, God is saying, I am your God. I've already established our covenant relationship. I brought you out of Egypt. I freed you from slavery. All of that was by grace. Therefore, Don't have any other gods besides me. Obey me. Let's take a look at Exodus 19, beginning in verse 2. The people of Israel came to Mount Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me 
a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it's at this point that God goes on to list a bunch of rules. A bunch of rules. Why? What was the purpose of all these rules? God promised that his family would bless the nations, and then God grows that family into a nation. And now God is teaching that nation how to be a blessing to the nations. As we see in verse 6, God's law was intended to create a kingdom of priests. So what is a priest? The role of a priest was to guard, serve, and mediate Israel's relationship with God. So what would be the purpose of an entire kingdom of priests? The role of a kingdom of priests would be to guard, serve, and mediate the relationship between God and all the nations, the rest of the world. And this, this is precisely how the law advances God's redemption. This is where we see Moses building on Abraham, who was building on Noah, who was building on Adam. Israel knew God's promises, but they didn't yet know the promiser. And they knew redemption, but they didn't yet know their redeemer. And so God gives them the law as if to say, this is what I'm like. Obey me and you will be a kingdom of priests mediating my love and grace and presence to the rest of the world. Now, it's imp- it is so important to understand that the law was never intended to be a means by which people could save themselves. Never. After all, the law included all sorts of rules and regulations um, regarding sacrifices and what to do when people sinned. And so the entire system assumed that people would be sinning. The law was never intended to be a means by which we could save ourselves. So why was the law given? I want to suggest two reasons. Number one, we've already touched on this, but the law was given in order that the nation of Israel would be distinct and set apart from the other nations. It was given to make Israel into a kingdom of priests. And this was all connected back to God's promise to Abraham. You will be a blessing to the nations. But here's the problem. Like Adam, like Noah, Israel failed to obey. They failed to keep God's covenant. They forgot his miracles and his mighty works. They grumbled. They perpetrated evil. And worst of all, Worst of all, they fell into religious syncretism. They fell into worshiping other gods. And here's a teaser for next week. Teaser for next week, spoiler alert. Judges 17.6 tells us that every person, every Israelite, did what seemed right in his own eyes because there was no king. And next week, we're going to be looking at God's covenant with David, the king of Israel. So in the end, Israel was not the kingdom of priests. It was, it was meant to be. It was called to be. And that brings us to the second reason God gave the law. Number two, God gave the law to help us see 
all of the ways we fall short of his holiness. And why is that important? Because seeing our shortcomings should cause us to long for a redeemer. Seeing our shortcomings should cause us to long for Jesus. That's what it did for Israel. It's, that's what it should do for us. Israel's failures were supposed to point them to the coming Messiah, to the, to the one promised to Adam back in Genesis 3.15. Jesus was the firstborn son of God who finally obeyed. Jesus was the new Adam, which means that he was also the new Noah and the new Israel. Whereas every covenant head before him had failed, Jesus was victorious. He was holy. He was perfectly obedient. As the true Adam, Jesus obeyed God at the tree, bearing our curse on the cross. As the true Noah, Jesus preserves us by suffering a flood of judgment on the cross. As the true Abraham, Jesus left his father's household, entered the wilderness of this world to pay the price for our covenant unfaithfulness. He was torn apart on the cross. And as the true Moses, Jesus led us out of slavery by obeying the law perfectly and sacrificing himself for our sin on the cross. And now, that sacrifice has made us holy. Jesus' sacrifice has made us into a kingdom of priests. The church is still called to guard and serve and mediate the relationship between God and all of the nations. The relationship between God and your neighbor and your coworker and your family. We are a kingdom of priests. And because of Jesus, we can, we can do it. We can remain faithful to that calling. Let's read from Galatians 3, beginning in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come, until Jesus should come. And then in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. See, the law was meant to show Israel how far they fell short, so that they could place their hope in the coming Redeemer. And this is how we can say, this is how we can say that there has only ever been one means by which God saves, and that's by grace through faith. Israel's faith was forward-looking to the coming Christ, and our faith is backward-looking at the Christ who has come, and the Christ who will come again. So, because of Jesus... God's covenant with Moses actually facilitates God's covenant with Abraham. 
the law facilitates the promise. And this helps us to understand how Jesus himself could have had such a strict moral code. If anything, Jesus made the moral elements of the law heavier and more difficult to bear. Jesus raised the bar for us. He didn't get rid of it. Why? Because it is still, it is still right and good that we should feel the full weight of our disobedience. Then, by grace, in accordance with God's promise to Abraham, the Holy Spirit can cover our disobedience with the obedience of Christ, making us into the kingdom of priests we were always called to be. 1 Peter 2.9 says that the church is currently a royal priesthood. Sojourn, you are a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, guarding, serving, mediating the relationship between God and all the nations. Jesus has made this so. He has made this true of us. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? Two things. Number one, we are still expected and required to obey God's moral law. When we understand that the Bible is fundamentally about Jesus from beginning to end, we can relate to God's law properly. And when we reject the centrality of Christ in all of the scriptures, the Bible starts to look a bit schizophrenic. Random stories, moral tidbits, but ultimately it's incoherent. It's incoherent because we don't see Christ on every page. When we understand that the law was meant to point us to Jesus, we can also understand why some laws have served their purpose, whereas others are still binding. Traditionally, theologians have divided the law into three categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. The civil category was meant to govern the people of God as a nation state, but that's not how the church is organized. We're not a nation state. The ceremonial category was meant to cleanse and purify God's people of sin, but Christ has cleansed and purified us once and for all. However, the moral category, as, as outlined within the Ten Commandments, is still binding on Christians because it's rooted in the nature and character of the God we worship. So because we keep the first commandment, that we not have gods beside the one true God, because we keep that commandment, we keep the other nine. We obey the moral law giver. We do not murder. We do not covet. We do not lie etc. And remember, Jesus raised the bar on these things. The New Testament gives all sorts of moral guidance, and that's not anti-gospel. We respond to God's grace properly when we respond to God's grace with obedience. And when we fail to obey, we, as the forgiven of God, look once again to Christ and we ask for his help as we dust ourselves off and try again. That's the freedom we live into 
as the children of God, as those who have this covering from Christ to apply to our disobedience. So number one, we are still expected and required to obey God's moral law. And number two, because of Jesus, we can obey joyfully. In John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we cannot love God without obeying God. But again, this is not anti-gospel. This is not opposed to the gospel of grace. Because of Jesus, the law is to us no longer burdensome. It's transformed. It's no longer our enemy. When the law reveals our sin, when it convicts us of sin, where it when it shows us where we've gone wrong, it's doing us a favor. Because we know what to do with that now. We can see the full glory of God's commandments. They were all and always pointing to Jesus. Every time we succeed, we have the grace of Christ to thank. And every time we fail, we have the grace of Christ to cover our sin and to make us new from the inside out. And for this very reason, Israel was grateful for the law. They had only a future hope of a Redeemer, and they were grateful for this law. The the Redeemer has come. We are living in an age where the Redeemer has already come. How much more should we be grateful for this guidance from our Father, this law? Think back to the image of my daughter running into the street. Some of us are standing on the curb, flirting with disobedience. Some of us are flat out playing in the highway. I want you to hear your father's voice. Son, daughter, stop your feet. We may find his rules outdated or intolerant or harsh. But to be quite honest, and I I hesitate saying this, but to be honest, we don't know what's best. You don't know what's best. You get 80 years in this life, and that's a good, long life. You don't know what's best. We don't get to pick and choose which rules work for us. He loves us. He loves us. He loves you. He loves every one of you. And if you know that, if you believe that, his law will not be burdensome. It will not be burdensome to obey a loving father. Let's pray. Father, we know that you love us. We believe that you love us. You proved that by sending your firstborn into this wilderness so that he could obey your law perfectly, so that we could enjoy his obedience and his righteousness. 
God, thank you for the call that you've placed on our lives to be together this kingdom of priests, this holy nation. Thank you that in Christ it's true of us. We ask, God, that you would help us by your spirit to grow up into that identity. To be that more truly and more fully tomorrow and the next day. Give us grace and and work through us that we might guard and serve and mediate the relationship between you, our Heavenly Father, and our friends and co-workers and neighbors and all of creation. God, this is a high calling and it's a joy. It's a joy to be called into your bride, your church, this kingdom of priests. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.